Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we have Dr. Allie Bramson. Allie's a new professor this semester in, of planetary science in the Department of, of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences here at Purdue University. So welcome, Allie. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, all right. So before we before we get into like some of the content stuff that both you're studying and the other content things we want that's related to that we want to talk about, uh, what's a new professor? <laughs> Um, so I just started a job as a professor like 10 days ago or something. So, um, yeah, I'm considering myself a new professor because I just started and I'm just learning, learning the ropes of how to handle all of the different uh, aspects of this job. But I think 10 days in would be considered new in anything. And so <laughs> that's fair. Congratulations, by the way. <laughs> Totally fair. And yeah. so what's your background and what's your, what, I guess, what uh, research are you looking to do as a professor and maybe what research have you done to get there? Yeah. Um, so my background, my um, undergrad degrees are in physics and astrophysics with a minor in computer science. And throughout the course of undergrad, I worked on a lot of different research projects because uh, I, I knew from when I was like four that I wanted to be a scientist. And I was like, I want to be an astronaut because like I liked space, but I didn't know what that meant in terms of like a job for space sciences. And like, so the only thing that I ever saw was like, oh, I'm going to be an astronaut. And that's what I have to do to like do space stuff. And then I like slowly figured out that like, Okay, just because astronauts go into space doesn't mean they like study space. And also there are jobs just like studying space like that is a, a career path. Um, and so, yeah, I went to college um, with the intention of trying to become a, a scientist that specializes in some type of space thing. But um, then I realized like space is really large and there's lots of types of space like there's stars and galaxies and planets and like a lot of different things and so I worked on a lot of different research projects trying to hone in on my my interests and I started in an environmental chemistry lab actually looking at metal nanoparticles and like making nanoparticles that like could be in socks that have antimicrobial properties and like if those like get thrown, if you throw away your antimicrobial socks, like are they gonna leach heavy metals into the environment? And so I started doing research like that and I was like, ah, oh, this is like too small and like obscure for me. This is like 10 to the minus nine meters. And so then I got involved doing research with a professor in, in the astronomy department, which was my major and doing galaxy clusters and like, how do galaxies cluster together? So that's like 10 to the 30th meters. So I like have spanned all the orders of magnitude of the universe. Um, and then did uh, some summer internships through the National Science Foundation. Um, they have these like research experience experiences for undergrad programs, which are amazing. And I did one at Arecibo Observatory shooting radar beams at asteroids. And then another one at the SETI Institute, so the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, looking for new lava flows on Jupiter's moons. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing ever. Like our solar system and the planets and like using spacecraft data, like that is what I want to do. Like I never knew that that was like a job I could do is like using NASA spacecraft missions and getting involved in NASA missions. And so as soon as I realized like that was a job 
option for me. I was like, done. <laughs> this is what I'm going to be. I'm like, now, like, you know, I want to go to grad school and get my PhD in this. And like, this is it. This is it. <laughs> and so, so yeah. So, so in undergrad for me, it was really like trying to find like what type of science and what type of, you know, day-to-day -day tasks, even for science, you know, there's lab people, there's computer programming people, like science can be, mean a lot of different things these days. And so, um, yeah, basically staring at pretty pictures of other planets that some NASA robots took, that's my jam. Um, <laughs> and using physics to try to explain what I'm looking at is, is really, you know, the overarching, um, my research interest. And so, I went to University of Arizona and got my master's and my PhD um, and in planetary sciences. And at that point, I realized, like, I, I really want to study the surfaces of planets. Like, you can see pictures of surfaces and craters and volcanoes and, like, trying to explain the surfaces. And um, so I, I had to take some geology classes and get caught up on geology. And so now I'm, like, basically in, like, an Earth and Atmospheric and Planetary Sciences department, even though I have a you know, an astrophysics and computer science and physics background. And so one thing that I love about planetary science is how interdisciplinary it is. It's really at the intersection between physics, astronomy, chemistry, geology, engineering, um, biology for like astrobiology. And I just think that's like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> um, Sweet. <laughs> I like that. And it is. People don't realize how interdisciplinary we are. It's everything. It's okay. You're, if I mean, if, if people think, oh, our science, they're just like studying rocks or the weather or something, maybe. But no, it's it, we are all your fields and subjects is combined. Yeah. yeah. It, we don't, there's no such thing as like this independent, very narrow thing anymore. It's you have to know and collaborate with so yeah. many different people in a field. Yeah. That can be misleading sometimes, I think, for students at school because they go to chemistry class and then they go to algebra class and then they go to physics. I mean, they they have those differences throughout the day. And, and so I think it's it's great to hear it from you that you're using all of these things, that it's not you're not just looking at, locked into one. Yeah. But, oh, so what um, what are what pretty pictures are you looking at now for your research that you or what are you doing? What are you looking at now? Yeah, um, so my um, my work in grad school and, you know, up to this point, my sort of specialty has been in understanding ice on Mars. So, like, where is there water in, like, the subsurface, uh, especially at lower latitudes? So, at the poles, the um, Mars has these, like, big ice caps that are, like, miles thick, um, sort of like we have on Earth with like Antarctica or Iceland or um, sorry Greenland, and um, and so Mars Mars is similar where like the poles are really cold and so they have these like thick ice caps and you can see the ice at the surface um, and so I've been trying to understand how much ice is there actually on other parts of the planet like at latitudes and areas like Purdue is at um, you know sort of in the what we call the mid latitudes so not at the poles not at the equator. Um, you know, could there be ice that's um, stable and exists in the subsurface, just like that has a layer of dust over it that actually helps insulate it and protect it. Um, and so I've been using like radar data from from NASA missions. So the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has a, a Sherrod radar instrument that was built actually by the Italian Space Agency. And it can shoot radar beams down at the surface that actually go into the subsurface and we can look for um, 
you know, what's going on in the subsurface and is there ice there? Um, and then follow up with images. So um, there's also um, a context camera and the high rise camera on board MRO. And they, they're taking all these pretty pictures and we can look and actually there's some craters in these areas that, so you have one image and like, it's just a flat, dusty, you know, reddish brown surface. And then you take another image of the same area a couple months later, and all of a sudden there's a brand new crater there. There's a hole in the ground. And at these sites, the craters are actually like really bright and white and like expose the ice that's in the subsurface. That impact has actually excavated the ice and shown us there is for sure ice in these places. And so then we can keep taking pictures and watch the ice is not stable anymore because now it's been exposed to the surface and you can actually watch it sort of fade away as it sublimates back into the atmosphere. And that's where it's so cold and the atmospheric pressure is so low on Mars that it actually just skips the water phase. So it doesn't actually melt. It just goes straight from the ice in the subsurface and just goes straight into like the vapor form in the atmosphere. Um, but it tells us that there's actually like a lot of ice in the subsurface um, and so, so what I um, do is like, I, I try to integrate these like image data sets with radar data sets. And I also do some like um, some modeling, trying to understand like how, how stable the ice should be and how long it's been there. Um, and so, so at Purdue, I plan to continue that sort of research. It's um, sort of a hot topic right now or cold topic, I guess. Um, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> but it's, um, you know, it's really interesting to try to understand where these ice deposits are and what their parameters, like what, you know, how much dust is in it or just from understanding the climate of Mars, because you can't form these ice deposits today. So they are a record of previous climate on Mars. Um, and so what what record, you know, is it trying to tell us and trying to decipher that is, is part of my job and, and part of my research interests, as well as, um, you know, if we ever send humans there one day, um, you know, they're going to need water to drink and water can be converted to rocket fuel um, to like send people back if they want to come back to earth. Um, yeah. And, and so understanding where the ice is, especially at these lower latitudes where it's warmer and there's more sunlight, like it's not going to be fun to go to the poles and have like months and months of darkness in the polar night. And um you know, your robots aren't going to like that if they're solar powered, you're going to be like super cold. <laughs> so, yeah. Closest to the equator still have those ice resources is a really important topic right now um, uh, for NASA and SpaceX and, and the other uh, space agencies. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's a lot of what I'm working on right now. Um, so I just want to ask, when you're talking about the ice you you mean just ice like what we have here on earth right nothing yeah inside. water ice so that that actually um brings up a common misconception is so mars's atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide ice and there is also carbon or sorry the atmosphere is mostly carbon dioxide and it, it does condense out um into like seasonal ice um and uh, there is some buried, like massive carbon dioxide ice deposits in the South Pole, but actually most of the ice that we're talking about and most of the ice, even in like the polar caps is is water ice. And that was something that I think um, 
you know, a couple tens of years ago, the thinking was it was mostly carbon dioxide ice, but we know now that it's like almost all water ice. Um, but we don't know, are there like toxic salts mixed in? There's quite a bit of like perchlorates um, in, in Mars's like dust. So, and those are like, you don't want to drink that. So, so part of this research is also um, trying to figure out like, can you just melt it and drink it and you're good to go? Or, you know, do you have to try to get out, um, you know, how much do you have to like sort of clean it and filter it to get dust out or perchlorates out to make it usable? Um, and from the climate side, like, what does that mean if you have a certain amount of dust or perchlorate mixed into the ice, what does that mean for the processes that led to like the snow, you know, forming in this area in the past? And how do we know it's water ice? That's a good question. Um, so one, there's a few different arguments for like how we know that it's ice, uh, water ice. Um, one is just from like a temperature point of view. Um, so actually the, like the mid and like lower latitudes are warm enough that carbon dioxide ice would not be stable. So carbon dioxide ice is like, um, stable at like lower temperatures. So if you're getting temperatures as warm as the mid latitudes get, you know, like during at noon, during the summer or whatever, like, yeah, you can, you can't preserve carbon dioxide ice in these locations. Um, and then also using like the radar and different instruments that um, try to look at sort of the fingerprints of the ice, um, um, what we call like spectroscopy data. And that's what I was going to ask. Are we talking spectroscopy now? So, yeah, and that starts getting outside. I haven't done a lot of spectroscopy, but like through that and then also like the radar data looking at uh, what we call the dielectric properties, um, which is like sort of how the radar wave moves through that material um, and how it, it uh, yeah, sort of interacts with like an electromagnetic wave. <laughs> so, so all those sorts of properties also tell us that it's, it's water ice, but, okay. but certainly you get carbon dioxide, like seasonal ice and stuff, uh, those processes happening too, like in the winter, sort of a little carbon dioxide frost um, that forms over the course of the night, sort of like, you know, you go outside in the morning after it's cold and you have a little frost layer. So that happens on Mars too, but carbon dioxide ice. Oh my cool. <laughs> All right. Now Mars, uh, being a, it's, it's one planet. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I guess I need to ask you, uh, cause you're with your, Oh, this would be a good one for you. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. Where's it going to go? Where's it going? Um, the, um, is the moon a planet is in the, your world? Like our moon? Yes. In your world, is it classified as a planet or not? Well, technically, I, I, I mean, the moon is like orbiting our planet. So by definition, it's like a moon. But oftentimes, colloquially, I sort of refer to like any object in the solar system that's not the sun as planet, a planet. Sometimes it's just easier to be like, oh, I study the planets. But like, yeah. you know, actually, sometimes I do some stuff with like moons or our moon. And um, but I, I would not consider our moon a planet, even though sometimes it's just you're more of the astronomer, astronomer, because with your astrophysics and stuff, I'm like, well, I bet she's coming from the astronomy side of it and we yeah. talked to a nasa geologist the, for geochronology and she's like oh well 
geologically we would classify it as a planet because it has tectonics and a core mantle and i can't yeah. remember what it was i need to go back and listen to her again i guess and it's like basically a sphere and yeah and she's like well yeah of course it's a planet and i'm like oh my mind when she said that yeah, yeah. astronomers could classify however they want but it's planet <laughs> yeah. i feel like we often talk about like lumpers versus splitters like do people like to lump things into one category? Or are they into like splitting it into lots of different categories? And... Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so what are some of the other things that are in the solar system other than the, yeah, the astronomer's planets? And what are some things, in, and I guess kind of what what's the difference a little bit? Yeah. Such so... weirdly worded. <laughs> yeah, so, so I mean, at least right now the the definition of a planet as defined by the international astronomical union is that planets are objects that orbit the sun and essentially are big enough and have enough gravity that they've become more or less spheres or, or balls um and that it's also that they've cleared their sort of neighborhood that around their orbits they're the they're you know the the big person in town like they're they're it <laughs> and if anything else tries to wander into its orbit that either hits it and it's sort of like absorbed into the planet or it you know it interacts with the gravity and it gets like shot out and ejected out of its orbit like hey get out of my space <laughs> so <laughs> planets um that's sort of the definition of a planet and so by that definition we have eight planets in the solar system um, and we've got the terrestrial planets. So that's like Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And those are rocky and have metal cores. And, and those are rocky and metal, like have metal because they, they're thought to form in the, the sort of inner part of the solar system close to the sun. So it was too hot for like ice and stuff to stick around. Um, but meanwhile, when you start going to the outer solar system, then you've got the gas giants and the ice giants. So the gas giants um, Jupiter and Saturn are, um, you know, more made a, a, of gas that was able to sort of clunk together and stick around. Um, and then if you go even farther out, so now Uranus and Neptune are, are considered more to be like ice giants, um, a separate category than, than gas giants. And, and that's because at that point it's, it's cold enough in the solar system that they, um, they were able to form from lots of ices. It was cold there. And so the ices didn't just like, you know, get, get, um, it, it wasn't too hot for them. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's, it's called like that line of where like ice can exist versus where it's too hot is, is sometimes called the snow line. But, but yeah, so the ice giants are made of like, um, water and ammonia and methane ice. Um, and then outside of Neptune's orbit is, um, well, so there was Pluto. And we considered Pluto a planet, like Pluto was a planet when I was growing up. Um, you know, you have the placemat that you're eating on when you're, um, you know, eating breakfast on. It has all the planets on it. At least I didn't have that, but I was, you know, obsessed with this space since for forever. Um, and so, yeah, past Neptune, there's all these, like, other objects that we now know of. Like, in the last 20 or 30 years, we now know there's tons of objects out there past Neptune, not just Pluto. And actually, some... Eris is even bigger than Pluto. And so um, that kind of caused this like, well, okay, now we know there's a lot more out there. Do we classify those as planets or do we make them into their own category? 
Um, and so that's where, you know, there's sort of this, this dilemma and like lumpers versus splitters and um, what, how do we classify a planet? And so um, because there was all these, what are called trans-Neptunian objects found, um, several of them being like, yeah, really big objects. Um, ultimately, the International Astronomical Union, the IAU, that's sort of tasked with at least trying to come up with conventions for the community to use. Um, they decided to, okay, with this new knowledge that we have, let's make another category of object. Um, and let's call it like dwarf planets or like minor planets. And these are things that still orbit the sun. They're still large enough to be round sort of balls, um, but they're on the small side and they can orbit with other objects. They didn't need to have cleared their orbit. And so, and Pluto fits into this category because it orbited or egg shape and it crosses Neptune's path sometimes. And there's also all these other trans-Neptunian objects out there. And so that's where, yeah, dwarf planets sort of became another category in the last, um, you know, 15 years or so. And, and in addition to that, there's also, there's the asteroids and, and comets as well. And so we have our asteroid belt that's sort of in between Mars and Jupiter. And that's a bunch of like rocky fragments um, that are sort of left over from when the planets formed. So there was a bunch of stuff, you know, going around in like our pre-solar, you know, solar system area and they were colliding and, and clumping together and eventually the big ones became the planets. But a bunch of the remnant rocky and, and icy material is still left over. We still have a lot of it in the solar system. And so a lot of that is in the form of rocky objects in the asteroid belt and then also um, icy objects out in the outer solar system, like in the Kuiper belt where Pluto and these trans-Neptunian objects are and also the Oort cloud uh, which is a bunch of icy stuff that's sort of like all, you know, enveloping our solar system, but like sort of it's a big blanket of ice, icy material that surrounds our solar system. And oh. and comets come usually from like the Kuiper Belt or the Oort cloud. It's like these icy objects that are on these these wacky orbits. And sometimes they like happen to wander into the inner solar system and then they they light up when the sun starts like causing the ice to turn to gas and that's where you get the tail so if anyone saw like the the comet a couple weeks ago mm -hmm. that yeah that happened just like make a visit into the inner solar system after hanging out really far away for a while and then it's ice was like i'm not stable this is too hot for me bye <laughs> <laughs> it, well why Mars? Why not like Titan or Europa? Why Mars? Why are you studying Mars? There's lots of data. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I mean, I mean, I think I think Titan and Europa and Pluto and I don't know. Like I, I've been asked, like, what's your favorite planet or what's your favorite solar system object? And like, I can't decide. They're all so cool for like such different reasons, and so. I think, you know, Mars, because it's pretty close to Earth, we've got like a really good cadence of sending missions there. So we've got like decades of um, of monitoring. And so we can actually see changes occurring on Mars. And it's sort of cool to compare and contrast and be like, oh, this place is like so like Earth sometimes and the processes are so similar. But at the same time, it can be so exotic and different. 
and and we have enough data and we've got regular data sets that we can find these like new impact craters that are exposing ice and we can um, see dust devils forming and going across the surface and dust storms that are, you know, it's, it's an active place. And, and so I guess I never thought about it having wind. Yeah. A dust devil. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, we've got like, like you can find like gifs of like dust devils going around the surface that the rovers have seen. And you can also see them from orbit. And the thing is the atmospheric pressure is, is so low. It's like less than 1% of earth that the dust devils actually get to be so high. They would be taller than Mount Everest on earth. Oh my gosh. So Mars is a cool place and it's super active. You can see like um, some sand dunes that move. Mm -hmm. There's like these seasonal frost processes that like deposit ice layers just like overnight or in the winter. So it's a really active place. It's close to get to. It's relatively easy to get to. You can get there in the course of like several months. Whereas, you know, the missions to Pluto are hard to do because it takes so long to get there. And which is one thing about this job is it like requires really long-term planning. Cause you have to be like, you would be in it and be like, all right, I'm not gonna get this like data for, you know, if this mission is selected by NASA, maybe it'll launch in like 2030 and then I'll get like my <laughs> image that I need to do my study in like 2036. And um, <laughs> so, wow. so I think I, I'm certainly interested in like all of the solar system and I've been involved in studies like trying to understand carbon dioxide ice deposits that form in craters in Uran like Uranus's moon. Um, uh, one of their moons, uh, called, uh, there's, so, um, there's a moon called Umbriel and it has this big crater called Wanda and it has like this bright deposit. So first of all, we barely have any data for, for out there in the solar system. The Voyager missions went by there like back in like 1986. And we have like one image of one part of the moon and that's it. And that's like all we have to try to study. And there's this like bright ring inside the crater. And so I was involved in a study um, with another professor actually um, at Purdue, Mike Sorry. We both just started here. And um, we we found that the, the crater is probably full of carbon dioxide ice. And so we called it a Wanda full world because the crater is named Wanda and thought we were really, really clever. And, you know, <laughs> so, so certainly I've been involved in studies um, you know, not just, ju not just Mars. Cause I think the whole solar system is really cool, but Mars just does have a lot of data because it is just relatively easier to get to than sort of the outer parts of the solar system. And, and at this point there's sort of, we want to continue that monitoring that we already have and not lose that data set uh, when, you know, trying to understand these active um, processes that are affecting, affecting Mars. But yeah. Well, from your research and things, what, from your perspective, where do you see, what are some implications of the research that you're doing? Yeah. So, I mean, one, one is just like on the human exploration side. I, I can't say, I don't know when it'll actually happen or if, uh, you know, when we'll ever get to the stage of sending humans to Mars, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, but it's going to be a really hard task. Like we haven't even gone back to the moon since, you know, in the 60, 70, <laughs> 60 <laughs> years or so. And um, so, 
so yeah, I mean, we'll see when it happens on Mars. It would be awesome. But certainly, you know, understanding where the ice is that is an accessible resource for human explorers is is, is one big implication. Um, and And another is in terms of, like, if you understand ice stability and where ice is on the planet and, and on Mars, that can tell you just about processes that that shape all the planets, including Earth. So, you know, if we can better understand Mars's climate, especially because it's a simpler system, it doesn't have an ocean, it doesn't have life, it doesn't have humans. <laughs> um, it's, it's a simpler system, but to some extent, it, in one way, it's more extreme. So, so the axial tilt of a planet um, and like the, how eccentric the orbit is and some, some aspects of, of the planet, um, vary sort of over, over different time scales, like a hundred thousand years or something, but the axial tilt or how much the planet is tilted. We also call it the obliquity that affects where ice is stable. And so even the, the ice ages on earth, um, can be somewhat attributed. They're called Milankovitch cycles to like very subtle variations in like that tilt of the planet, because if you're more tilted, then the pole is getting more direct sunlight. And all of a sudden, you know, ice isn't as stable at the poles. And if you have no tilt, then your equator is just getting blasted with sunlight and your poles are really, really cold and experience like more extreme winters. And so this tilt is really important and and can cause ice ages on earth meanwhile on mars because mars doesn't have like a big stabilizing moon like we do here on earth its tilt actually like sort of goes a little crazy and can be like it's thought that in mars's history it's like been as high as like 60 or 80 degrees like it's almost been tilted on its side and then sometimes it's just like perfectly straight up and has no tilt and so it's actually an awesome sort of laboratory for studying how do these um, natural processes affect climate change on another planet um, so that we can sort of subtract those out from from Earth. Like we know that there's natural variations that occur because we know that the tilt is changing. We know that, um, you know, subtly eccentric, subtle eccentricity changes happen and, and that can drive natural climate change. Um, and so if we understand these processes, we can sort of subtract them out and see, okay, what are the processes and timescales and stuff of, of like the climate change that we're experiencing now? And how does that compare and start making more connections to these other factors like, like humans? <laughs> All right, so that blew me away just a little bit because uh, this is the first time I've ever heard someone discuss studying another planet to better understand the earth we've always do the opposite that's all we talk about is we study the earth so we can better understand processes and how things happen but this is the first time i've heard someone talk about oh we're studying i mean we study the till and, and things i guess to better understand what is happening naturally to see our impact that's the first time i've heard anybody say that, that okay i'm just like i'm done for the week <laughs> Mercy. Uh, it's a, it's a <laughs> yeah, we're we're towards the end of the week, anyways. It's yeah. yeah. <laughs> that and I, I didn't. I mean, it's you said like three or four things in there that I'd, I'm like, what? What? 
Um, it, you might be coming back. Um, you might have another <laughs> episode now because I, 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 first of all, I didn't realize our tilt wasn't like, I didn't know there were small variations in the tilt. I didn't either. I didn't know the moon was help keeping our tilt stable. Right. I'm like, when she, you said that, I was like, what? <laughs> Yeah. Thank okay. you, Moon. <laughs> that and keep going. What? <laughs> it's, uh, it... Wow. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. The moon, like the Earth's tilt, is at like sort of twenty-three or twenty-four degrees, and that's the whole reason why we have seasons, right? So, like, because we're slightly tilted, sometimes you know we're in the hemisphere that's pointed towards the sun, and then on the other side, we, yeah the orbit we're facing away and because of our moon we only like change our tilt by like maybe one degree whereas mars is just like well i'm gonna do what i want to do <laughs> wow what that is <laughs> that's really cool oh so, yeah go out and thank the moon tonight <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. i think i might just have to do that <laughs> that waning gibbous <laughs> but um okay well thank you we really appreciate your time. 